midday on the first Monday of November and we've apparently entered into the season of summer in 2020. I'm Cindy Moritz. This month the FMR Book Choice team has gone all out to bring you their best suggestions so we're going to get straight into it. I'm joined in the studio by Mzukizi Maketa and we look forward to spending the next hour with you. Vanessa Levenstein takes us to the end of the dark ages in Ken Follett's 800-leaf page-turner, The Evening and the Morning. And Philip Todras lets us join him on a riotous romp in Hilary Prendini Toffoli's Love and Miracles of Pistola, which follows the trials and tribulations of a young man who comes to South Africa from a small town in Italy in the 1950s. Chegofatso Madiko found an ultimately hopeful message in Kelly Eve Koopman's memoir, Because I Couldn't Kill You. And Beverly Ruas Muller chose to review two big writers, as different as night and day, but who tackle the same theme here Joe Nesbo with The Kingdom and John Grisham with A Time for Mercy, both dealing with violence against women, each in their inimitable way. John Hanks calls Peter Haynes' first novel, The Rhino Conspiracy, compelling, describing it as an intriguing mix of fact and fiction. And Beryl Eichenberger jumped at the chance to read Tsitsi Dangarembra's latest This Mournable Body, shortlisted for the 2020 Booker Prize, calling it a gritty and stark read that brings Zimbabwe into sharp focus. Leanne Voisey reviewed These Are Not Gentle People, the story of the 2016 South African farm attack, told by award-winning author and correspondent Andrew Harding. And Melvin Minar was swept along by the musical rhythm of finely crafted, simple and punchy prose of Ghanaian-American novelist Yagiasi in her latest novel, Transcendent Kingdom. And we end off with another piece of South African non-fiction as Anthony Fridgen regales us with the independent newspaper saga documented so well in Paper Tiger, authored by two former Cape Times editors, Alide Dazenois and Chris Whitfield. Vanessa, you devoured Ken Follett's The Evening and the Morning. There is a silver lining to being housebound, and that's relatively uninterrupted time to binge read Ken Follett's The Evening and the Morning. This 800-page turner is a prequel to The Pillars of the Earth, which I hadn't read, so I can confidently say this book is perfectly enjoyed without prior knowledge of the Kingsbridge novels. In an interview, Follett said that The Evening and the Morning took him three years to write. The first year was research, the second year he just wrote, and in the third year, he rewrote the entire book. Little doubt his hard work will pay off, as this will surely join Follett's other bestsellers. 
The evening and the morning is set towards the end of the Dark Ages. England is facing attacks from the Vikings and the Welsh, yet the villagers are also vulnerable to the whims of the corrupt, cruel rulers of the town. The rule of law and the challenging thereof is a theme that runs through the novel. The storyline is quite standard. Think poor boy meets rich girl love story, and you already have two of the characters. Ragnar is a beautiful Norman noblewoman who marries a man she met only once, the elderman. That's a ruler of a town called Shiring. His name is Wolf Wolf. However, too late, Ragnar discovers that her husband believes that it's his birthright, as an Englishman, in fact, as a man, to bed as many women as he pleases. Wolf Wolf has two even more reprehensible half brothers: Winston, a bishop, who is morally repugnant. And the third brother is the brutish Wiggum. The half brothers use their power to corrupt, conquer, and kill. And then on the other side, literally of the river, in the little hamlet Drings Ferry, are two very good men: the monk Aldred and the romantic hero, a boat builder, the handsome, morally upright Edgar. If you're putting two and two together already, that is Edgar and Ragnar, you're on the right romantic path. Ragnar's strength, her focus and determination, her innate goodness and sense of justice, make her the perfect, almost woke protagonist. However, there are many obstacles and many pages to fill before one gets to happily ever after. And woven into this dramatic narrative is slavery, rape, and murder. Sadly, these gross violations of human rights are still prevalent today. Follett's landscape evokes the times, but the character's speech and internal dialogue. Feels modern. I can only contrast this with the book I had to plough my way through, Hilary Mantel's *The Mirror and the Light*, which is set about 560 years before the evening and the morning. Different literary genres, but still merit comparison. Here is a sentence from *The Mirror and the Light*: "You are gracious, madam," Mary says to the Queen. "I wish you nothing but what is your comfort. I take you now as my own lady mother, as if God had ordained the same." And a random sentence from the evening and the morning: "Congratulations on your marriage. I am so happy that you are England's queen. We're going to be such friends." I would have liked a fictional map at the beginning of this book, but a few gripes aside, it was a fantastic escape. Follett has one eating out of the palms of his pages. And if you want a book that doesn't require much work and transports you from the world of COVID-19 to the end of the Dark Ages, then pick up a copy of *The Evening and the Morning* by Ken Follett. Philip Tadras, we can't wait to hear what Hilary Prendini Toffoli had to say about her coming-of-age novel *Love and Miracles of Pistola*. *Loves and Miracles of Pistola* by Hilary Prendini Toffoli. Was really a very interesting read for me. It takes one into a social history that I really did not know about. I mean, I really did not know about Italian white men coming to serve on South African railways in the 1950s. Hillary, it's a terrific read. I'm going to say that right from the beginning. And you're a fabulous storyteller. But what I really found that really impressed me most was the sense of authenticity. You took me to Mantua. I really knew I was there. Tell me about your background and how you got involved with the story. I know you related to somebody very special who is from Italy. So, how much of that is in the story? 
Well, look, I mean, uh, my husband, Emilio Toffoli, grew up in Italy and, and only left when he was 18. He grew up in a village near Mantua. So, so all, all of that stuff <laughs> is authentic because it's, it's his life. The first part of the book before the Italians go to South Africa, that's very much his life, the, the food that they ate, the, the way. I mean, he always says to me, um, you know, uh, people in, in in Italy food's more important than anything else the the joke the joke that he noticed when if you when they die at a funeral somebody he heard somebody say shame no more tortellini for that poor bugger you know that's the kind of thing and if they they see you in the street they they don't say hi how are you they say hi have you had a good meal so you know it's all about food and and so on so that was partly what um you know led me to write the story i started it as a as a book about food and then i remembered that i'd done this wonderful interesting story for style magazine which you might remember which closed in in 2006 when i, I worked on it for for decades I, I wrote a story on the italians coming to south africa to work on the trains because the the whites didn't want to work on the trains. The young Afrikaners didn't want to. The English didn't want to. And and the nationalist government in the 50s didn't want blacks seeing women in their 90s in the in the morning when they took coffee to them. So uh, Ben Skuman, who I don't know if you remember Ben Skuman, but he was the minister of transport in the 50s, and he had had Italians working uh, former prisoners of war, war working for him, and he said these people believe that. Uh, that waitering is, is a profession and they would love it so they went to Italy which was of course uh, just getting over the war and these people had no work so they all came and they were they were, they were young and they were they were in their sev- in their teens like like Pistola who's 17 and um, so that's where I, I then moved Emilio's story into as if he as if he'd been one of them, which in fact he wasn't. He he came he went to Kenya. He's a he's a whole other story in himself, in fact, which is another book that I'm doing. But but he. Um, he just made he made quite a good pistola to then move into South Africa, and because I had been as a uni, as a UCT student, very taken up with the politics of the country, um, I thought we, you know we have to actually look at South Africa th- through the eyes of an Italian coming to this very alien uh, political landscape. So he goes to Sofia Town, he goes to what was then called the Malay Quarter, and and so on, and 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 you you see you see a whole side of South Africa through through his eyes and. And look, I've, I've kept it sort of light and I've kept it humorous because one doesn't want to kind of have, have another, another kind of depressing South African book about, about, about what we all went through. But um, I, th- I think it, it, it just made a very different kind of novel and it, p- people seem to, seem to be enjoying it. <laughs> well, what works very well for me is, as you say, you're seeing it through another set of eyes, some finding it strange and awkward, and yet some also has to tie into that and some of the others who don't but you take us to places Johannesburg, uh, Mozambique into Lorenzo Marx in particular and just uh, just give us a little bit more about that because I found it, as you say it was a fun story but the underlying it there were quite a lot of family dynamics, tensions uh, personal, political, just a little bit to tempt our listeners to know why they'd want to get involved in this book 
Well, look, I mean, he he he's he's an, an orphan living with this with this. Well, he thinks he's an orphan living with this grandfather, and so the, the, so there's that whole thing about a young boy growing up with a with an older man who's, who's quite difficult. Is in fact based on my Italian husband. You said there's a personal man. Well, I mean, his the grandfather is is very much um, you know who sings opera and and tosses tosses the odd uh, pasta against the wall when it's not to his liking and that sort of thing. That um, kind of of typical, those typical Italian characteristics are there. So there's, there's a whole lot of family dynamics that come into it, and there's a lot of poignancy because, you know, he, he's in love with, with, with a girl in the village who's about to be married some, to marry someone, someone else. So, you know, there, there's all of that, you know, the, the, the sadness of, you know, of this, this relationship that isn't what he, what he would have liked it to be. Um, I do, I'm not, no, look, I don't want to give away too much, but uh, the reason they go, of course, to Mozambique is that in those days, those trains in South Africa, the sleeper trains, they went to Namibia, they went to what was then southern and northern Rhodesia, and they went to Mozambique. So that's why they needed all these young Italians to come there. And he has an interesting experience in Mozambique, which then leads him into almost a, a sort of a criminal experience. I mean, he's a young, quite quite naive boy from a village who doesn't know, you know, he's not particularly streetwise. They have a they have quite a hard time in Johannesburg because they are these um, quite slick, young, good-looking Italian guys. And this is what, when I interviewed these, these, these stewards for, for the story in Style magazine, they told me they were actually beaten up a couple of times in the street by, by the South African boys who thought that, you know, they were here, They'd come to take their girls, you know, sharp dresses and, and their pointy shoes and, 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 you know, their slick down, brilliant hair and so on. I mean, they, they were quite something else. Thank you for the story and thank you for telling me about a social, part of social history that I really was not fully aware about. We've been talking to Hilary Brindidi Toffoli about loves and miracles of Pistola. <laughs> Thank you. 
It's a perfect tune for today's weather in the Mother City. It's summertime music there by George Gershwin. Uh, that was written for an opera, Poggy and Bess. This time around, it was performed by our late colleague, Mike Lotz, who was a saxophonist, cool guy indeed. Well, perfect tune. What do you think, Cindy? Perfect tune for the summer November oh, day. Absolutely. Wonderful. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Chekhovatso Madika, let's get back to the books. I'm pleased you walked away with a hopeful message after reading Kelly Eve Quipman's memoir, Because I Couldn't Kill You. Reading Because I Couldn't Kill You was a roller coaster, a beautiful, messy roller coaster. Kelly Eve is not afraid to say what most people are scared to say out loud. I think that's her power. Because I couldn't kill you plays around with the reader's emotions. But most importantly, every chapter gives you hope. Goodman managed to tackle so many issues in that book to a point where I felt like the book itself wasn't enough. And when I finished the book, I wasn't ready. But I was glad that I read it. I still wanted the story to continue. The book pushes one to dig deeper on their culture, sexuality, family ties, passion, and racial issues. Goodman's memoir inspires you to never be afraid to stand your ground. One thing that also pushed me to get the book for book choice was the title of the book. It's very powerful, and when you see it on the shelf, in my opinion, when you first see it, it makes you wonder of all the things. You couldn't kill a knife, but you couldn't. Or you could think otherwise, that it was rather a literal case of ending a life. However you want to put it, different people will feel different feelings towards the title of the book. Some it may encourage them to read or not to read. And as for me, I just had to read it. I had to know who could not be killed when it's so easy to get killed in this century. My favorite part about the memoir was when Goodman spoke about how mothers are neglected how mothers have so much on their shoulders from the moment they give birth to their first child. She spoke about how they immediately erased as human beings because from then we call them by mom or mother instead of their real name. And to us, they're just mothers, while in most cases they're a lot more than that. When she spoke about her mom being a feminist and a hardworking woman, it just made me think that she was right. We really forget about our moms because we see them as just moms. And I, I literally just started feeling bad. I just had to send my mom a WhatsApp text to let her know that I appreciate her because I realized that I raised my mom and only saw her as my mom, my provider. But just like any other mom, she's more than just a mom. Cookman's memoir reminded us how much mothers are neglected, to be specific. Every chapter in the book literally revives a whole different set of emotions and Goodman managed to paint a beautiful, colorful picture with every chapter. It was a beautiful book. I recommend everyone to read it. Beverly Rose Muller, you found common ground in Joe Nesbo's The Kingdom and John Grisham's A Time for Mercy. Tell us more. Two big writers today, as different as day and night. Joe Nesbo, a master of dark Nordic noir, and the industrious John Grisham, whose heroes always seem to come out on the sunny side of justice. 
The theme running through both of these new books is one of violence against women, to which the world is at least paying lip service, even if it is nowhere near enough. Nesbo and Grisham deal with the issue in very different ways. Nesbo's beaten wife is not powerless. She is also a smart, sharp architect with cutting-edge ambition. Grisham's slutty young mother, beaten to within an inch of her life, needs a knight in shining armour to ride to her rescue. Very American, that. Or perhaps just vintage Grisham. Nesbo is an interesting Norwegian author from a varied background. He has been a major league football player, founded a chart-topping rock band, was a financial analyst, and he sold over 45 million books, which are supple and surprising. The Kingdom charts the rustic life of two close-knit young brothers who lived in a high mountain village before their parents died in a mysterious car accident, crashing into a nearby ravine, a death trap revisited quite often in the story. There is a shocking secret in the family, and at first we are led by Nesbo to expect the unthinkable. It is a red herring, though their reality is somewhat more unthinkable than our first guess. Nesbo's talent is to produce 550 pages of sustainable, simmering tension, and to make Roy, the slightly older brother, a sympathetic character despite his considerable flaws. It never loses pace, nor seems too far-fetched, just an extreme version of the way life can turn on you. A Time for Mercy is a follow-up, according to John Grisham, of an earlier best-selling and cracking good novel, A Time to Kill, absolutely one of his best, and yet this sequel seems to have been written by a different version of the Grisham we expect to turn up. It is preachy, rooted in most of the values of middle America, and at times simply annoying. Jake Brigance is the same Mississippi lawyer who saved the black killer from death row, which has not endeared him to the locals, many of whom seem one step away, and perhaps not as far as that from the clan. Now a popular police officer has been killed by a 16-year-old boy after his mother, a trampy young woman with two teenage kids, has been beaten almost to death by the drunken officer, a nasty piece of work with a family that seems like the cast of deliverance. But this is America. A cop killer gets the death penalty, no matter that he's a teenager trying to protect his family. Church and school and state loom large. There is a somewhat surprising, to me, denunciation of abortion connected to the 14-year-old sister who has been violently raped. The oddities of the American legal system are displayed, including the election of judges, a system widely open to abuse, I would have thought. This is small-town America, struggling with a dilemma that seems curiously short of a larger morality. There is an implicit dislike of racism, which is a theme in Grisham's books, but the sexism is astonishing. At one point, Grisham writes, Jake's beautiful wife and daughter go off for some fun time, shopping and girls' stuff. And what would that girls' stuff be, I wonder? Governing Germany, like Auntie Angela? or sitting on the Supreme Court, like the marvellous and much-lamented Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You can see the ending from the very beginning of this book, and yet it feels unresolved. 
This is not the Grisham I have admired, but in the polarized America of today, I am sure it will find many enthusiastic fans. And I think that both books adeptly reflect ideas and attitudes of the societies that they live in, even though they are only, in inverted commas, thrillers. You make your own choice. Joe Nesbo was definitely my pick. Summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. It lingered there to touch your hair and walk with me. All summer long we sang a song and then we strolled. That golden sand Two sweethearts And the summer wind Like painted kites Those days and nights They went flying by The world was new Beneath the blue umbrella sky Then softer than a piper man One day it called to you I lost you I lost you to the summer wind The autumn wind and the winter winds, they have come and gone. And still the days, those lonely days, they go on and on. And guess who sighs his lullabies through nights that never friend the summer wind the summer wind warm summer wind the summer wind It's the crooner Frank Sinatra doing a lovely tune, Summer Wind, on Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3 FM. What's next on the menu, Cindy? What's going on? Well, we've got John Hanks, who called Peter Haynes, the Rhino Conspiracy, an intriguing mix of fact and fiction. Let's hear how is this so. I'm sure that many of us were shocked and disappointed to hear the news earlier this month that three full-time staff members of South African National Parks were arrested for rhino poaching following the discovery of fresh rhino horns in their vehicle. 
Two of them are security guards, while the other is attached to technical services at one of Kruger National Park's rest camps. It's disappointing because these arrests came a few days after the international celebration of World Rhino Day, an event that takes place every year to provide an opportunity for NGOs and members of the public to speak out against rhino poaching and to support and celebrate the five species of rhinos still remaining, all of which are seriously threatened by rampant poaching for their horns and habitat loss by human encroachment. But perhaps you would not have been surprised at the news of the transgression of staff appointed to be the custodians of rhinos if you have read Peter Haynes' totally compelling first novel entitled The Rhino Conspiracy. And I've put the word novel in inverted commas as the book is an intriguing mix of fact and fiction on rhino poaching in South Africa, which to me has great credibility because of the author's background. Peter Hayne was born in Kenya, but he grew up in Pretoria after his South African parents both returned here in 1951. They were Liberal Party activists and were banned in 1964, emigrating to Britain where Peter earned degrees from the University of London and Sussex. He joined Britain's anti-apartheid movement, winning election to its National Committee in 1968, helping to introduce the tactics of direct action to the sports boycott movement, disruptive demonstrations which halted rugby and cricket matches between Britain and South Africa in 1969 to 1970. He successfully defended himself against multiple legal challenges and survived a letter-bomb assassination attempt in 1972. In 1976, he was acquitted in a London court after the South African Bureau of State Security framed him on a charge of bank robbery. He was a British Labour Member of Parliament between 1961 and 2015 and served in the cabinets of both Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, also chairing the United Nations Security Council, negotiating international treaties and banning the trade in blood diamonds. The Rhino Conspiracy is a story of the battle to defend a rhino population on a private game reserve in KwaZulu-Natal. The book contains details of the insatiable looting and ubiquitous criminality which have come to dominate so much of the political discourse in South Africa in recent years, much of it with real names and events. But with others, the authors has introduced a number of strong, colourful characters, one of which is a veteran freedom fighter who is forced to break his lifetime loyalty to the ANC as he confronts corruption at the very highest level. Peter Hayne has called this one the veteran throughout the book, but I have no doubt that who he actually is will be spotted. Hayne's real-life experience of how the South African government under apartheid dealt ruthlessly with any opposition and how the government in the Jacob Zuma era dealt with whistleblowers makes this a compelling read. What appealed to me is that the author has done his research on the enormous problems of rhino poaching and the syndicates involved in moving rhino horn to the Far East and the day-to-day -day threats facing the rhino custodians. Although this is a novel, Peter Haynes' real anger and frustration at the extent of the corruption and the dismantling of law enforcement agencies 
which the veteran in the book and another one of the main characters regards as a total betrayal of the original ideals of the ANC, clearly articulated by Mandela, add to the plausibility of an engrossing read, which perhaps at times could be regarded as more of a political novel than one on rhino poaching. I hope this book will be widely read by people from outside of South Africa, as much for its history lessons in addition to being a gripping conservation-based thriller. Once you start reading it, you will not want to put it down, and there can be no stronger recommendation than that. The title again, The Rhino Conspiracy, is written by Peter Hayne. It's published in 2020 and published by Muswell Press in London, and it sells for 340 rand. Fun and laughter on a summer holiday No more worries for me or you For a week or two We're going where the sun shines brightly We're going where the sea is blue We've seen it in the movies Now let's see if it's true Everybody has a summer holiday Doing things they always wanted to So we're going on a summer holiday To make our dreams come true shines brightly We're going where the sea is blue We've seen it in the movies Now let's see if it's true Everybody has a summer holiday Doing things they always wanted to So we're going on a summer holiday To make our dreams come true for me and you It's summer holiday on a summer's day in the Mala City. The weather is beautiful. It's sung there by Cliff Richard on Fine Music Radio 101.3. I'm sure you are enjoying your lunch during this time with this kind of music. And thanks to, to Rick Everett for putting the music together. And I'm sure you've, you must have picked up the, uh, the theme already. It's summer. It's summer and very uplifting and welcome interspersed uplifting summery tunes in between the sometimes quite heavy topics that we have to sometimes address in our choice of books. Beryl Eichenberger, Eichenberger, you jumped at the chance to read Tsitsi Dangaremga's novel, This Mournable Body. What drew you to her work? As a Zimbabwean novelist, playwright and filmmaker, Tsitsi Dangaremga 
is a powerhouse in her field and an articulate commentator on the social issues of the country. Her debut novel, Nervous Conditions, in 1988, was named by the BBC in 2018 as one of the top 100 books that have shaped the world, as the first to be written in English by a black woman from Zimbabwe. The sequel, The Book of Knot, was published in 2006, and now her 2018 novel, This Mournable Body, which brings to a close the Tambudzai trilogy, is shortlisted for the 2020 Booker Prize. Outspoken and fearless, Dangaremga is also an activist arrested in August 2020 for anti-corruption protests and now currently out on bail in Zimbabwe. I had not read the previous two novels in the trilogy, so I had no preconceptions about the writing or the story. The novel is set in the 90s after Zimbabwean independence and when the economy has started crumbling and the fractured minds and bodies are still all too apparent. This is a soulful yet sad testament to a woman's life in an African patriarchal country where colonization has left its indelible stamp. Gritty and harsh, it chronicles a suffering city and its peoples. That Dangaremga is influenced by what is happening around her is apparent. She says, If I hadn't engaged with the bleakness of life in contemporary Zimbabwe in this mournable body, I might not have been moved to demonstrate and speak out. She has given African women a strong and provocative voice, exposing their plight and asking difficult questions. Her writing conjures up the dusty, unkempt streets of Harare, a city that has gone from sunshine city to shadow city. The decay of the city mirrors the decay of the human beings in the novel. I'm fascinated by how we manifest the inner in the outer, she says. And this is exactly as it reads, a parallel disintegration of a city and its inhabitants, and a destruction of the very soul of a country. When the book opens, Tambudzai Tsigalki, or commonly known as Tambu, is a bleak, disillusioned and desperately unhappy woman, approaching middle age, estranged from her family, jobless, childless and seemingly hopeless. Written in the second person, it is as if Tambu is an observer on a life that the Zimbabwean system has sabotaged. As an African woman who has been Western educated, she finds she is disadvantaged with her intelligence undermined and she is dangerously close to unravelling. Tambu moves from the hostel, where she is an overage resident, to rent a room on the estate of a wealthy widow. The widow's niece, Christine, is an ex-combatant who knows her village family and brings a gift from her mother that remains accusingly in Tambu's room as she is unable to acknowledge it. When she finally finds a new job teaching, it is only to lose it when she badly beats the mild-mannered student, Elizabeth. It is Tambu's breaking point as she hears the hyena calling and she lands in a psychiatric ward. Her aunt and cousin, Nyasha, support her during this time, and she's offered a temporary home with Nyasha and her German husband, Leon, and their two children. This is the beginning of her recovery, and on an outing one day, she runs into her school friend and nemesis, Tracy Stevenson, who hires her to help her launch an opportunistic ecotourism business venture. It is in this final part of the book, aptly named Arriving, that Tambu starts to find herself again not without a disastrous homecoming, but with a profound sense of hope and newly recovered self-respect. One of the things that struck me was that throughout the story, Tambu remains true to herself, decent 
upright, and mostly restrained, even in her most dire circumstances. This is a novel that is full of images, and Angerembek writes with the skill of the observant artist as she rolls back the lives of the ordinary Zimbabwean, their struggles and the manipulation of the wealthy. What comes across so compellingly is the status of women, or should I say, their non-status, to be used and abused as the men in the story wish. And it is this that makes so many of the female cast raw, ambitious, and outspoken. This is an African book written as only an African woman can, as she dissects and plays the characters one against the other. They bristle and speak in a way that might be strange to many ears, but the rawness depicts their anger, their resolution, and ultimately their successes. With the depth and breadth that is breathtaking, the reader feels as if they are caught in the crosshairs of a quivering rifle. There is almost a contemptuous tone as the apathetic Tambu views herself. Never sentimental, always thought-provoking. At times, the reader is angry with Tambu, then sorry for her, and finally rooting for her as she struggles to rebuild a life that she spent her youth working for. Evocative and devastating, this mournable body is a stark reminder of where we are, and Angaremba has once again lived up to her reputation—a brilliant addition to African literature. Leanne Voicey, you reviewed Andrew Harding's "These Are Not Gentle People." Can one bear to read more South African tragedy? "These Are Not Gentle People" is a true story told by Andrew Harding, an award-winning author and correspondent. It is difficult to put into words why the South African tragedy is important to not only read but absorb and think about respectfully. The actions and emotions portrayed are compelling and repulsive in equal measure, which also pretty much reflects our beautiful country's past and present. In 2016, a big group of Afrikaans farmers and their sons beat to death two black men that were suspected of fleeing the scene of a farm attack. Harding spent the next four years documenting what transpired after this one barbaric moment in time. The SAPS, the EFF, the ANC, the Hawks, the prosecutors and defence teams, including Barry Roo, fresh from the Oscar Pistorius trial, the white townsfolk of this free state town, and the white farmers themselves. Everybody had something to gain or to lose, whether it be political points, money. Social standing or jail time, everybody involved, jostling and manoeuvring, bending the truth or lying, and trying to come out on top, while the two victims and their families faded quietly into obscurity almost from the beginning, for everyone except the author. Harding obtained a wealth of personal anecdotes, heartfelt sentiments, and some inside information from all the role players by making his objectivity clear from the beginning. And becoming a familiar face around parades until the bitter end, he experienced firsthand the subtle insult of "Hello, Engelsman," outside court every day, and also saw for himself the total divide and disparity and hopelessness felt by the black people of this town. The author describes the farmers' hardships, the droughts, the crop failures, bankruptcies, and fear of attack, both imagined and absolutely real. And he also explains to us the impossible barriers placed in front of young black men who want to better themselves, how sad and frustrated they become, 
how anger and impotence boil over. This is a complicated, messy and unfair story which is most definitely an important one to read. Andrew Harding writes at the end of his book, In this inspiring, frustrating, fractured country, it is possible for two or more realities to coexist, to orbit each other, and that wounds, old and new, can only heal properly when we make the effort to recognize and to acknowledge someone else's truth. These Are Not Gentle People by Andrew Harding is published by Picador Africa and has been released by BBC Radio as a podcast. Roll out those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer Those days of soda and pretzels and beer Roll out those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer Dust off the sun and moon and sing a song of cheer Just fill your basket full of sandwiches and weenies Then lock the house up, now you're set And on the beach you'll see the girls in their bikinis As cute as ever, but they never get them wet Roll out those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer Those days of soda and pretzels and beer Roll out those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer you wish that summer could always be Driving are some romantic movie scene. Why, from the moment that those lovers start arriving, you'll see more kissing in the cars than on the screen. Roll out those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer, those days of soda and pretzels and beer. Roll out those lazy, hazy, crazy days of summer You'll wish that summer could always be here You'll wish that summer could always be here You'll wish that summer could always be here those days they are here in the mother city and we're enjoying the beautiful weather with beautiful music on fine music radio those lazy hazy crazy days of summer sung there by the cool guy Ned king cole and what do we have next on the menu what Cindy? do we have next well melvin minna was swept along by ghanaian american novelist Yagiasi's musical rhythm and finely crafted prose in her latest transcendent kingdom with her first novel home going the then 26 year old ghanaian american novelist yayezi vowed the top critics in 2016 that marvellously white-spun generational tale also won numerous awards. 
the expectation for her second book was high, and this year she didn't disappoint. But her new book takes a different tack, being less plot-driven than a meditation on various existential subjects. The somewhat mysterious-sounding title hints at the run of the read. Yet, Transcendental Kingdom is also a book you don't want to leave for later reading. It sweeps you along with a kind of musical rhythm of finely tuned, simply crafted and punchy prose. Not to mention the glorious, subtle flashes of wit and warm humour. What gives the novel a lively pulse is its personal foundation. Like Yazi, the first-person narrator is a second-generation immigrant from Ghana who settled in Huntsville, Alabama. Her name is Gifty, a name which suggests the story edges beyond the real, the idea of transcendence, in fact. She's indeed gifted, clever, set on a pursuit of knowledge amidst the family background of uneasy evangelical devotion. In the present narrative of the novel, she's in a sixth year studying for a doctorate in neuroscience. But the science of her search for knowledge clashes with the religion of her upbringing in a rebellion for truth and understanding. In the traditional roots of the diaspora narratives, the family had come to the States for the promises. But the reality was too hard in many ways. Her father, nicknamed by the young brother and sister, the Chin Chin Man, returns to Ghana and despite promises never comes back. Her mother, nicknamed the Black Mamba or TBM, struggles in a hard-working home care job. She's initially stoically common-sensed about their situation and finds solace in the church, the first assemblies of God and its pastor John. But it is a compromised solace and one senses the subtle unease of the Ghanaian Christian transplanted to the American-style church manner. Growing up and increasingly aware of the differences in Huntsville, Gifty finds escape in academia. As a child, she keeps a book of questioning letters to God and later writes a journal. Her older brother Nana, named Buzz by his sister, is tall and excels in sport. Starting with soccer, an African sport, he switches to American basketball, where the tall and dark is helpful, yet markers of racism linger. An on-court accident triggers Nana's ultimate tragedy of addictions to opioid and death. When Gilti writes that the four had become one, it is clear that life in the promised land had collapsed. Her mother's depression turns inward and to mental instability. Gifty emerges herself in a scientific work, working with laboratory mice on addiction research. Her emotional world is compromised and grief deeply locked away. It's an obsession that unsettles relationships with possible friends and lovers, but yet hers is not despair. The book is constructed of short chapters, often as flashbacks of scenes. One can imagine it as television drama, yet there is not a plot in the usual sense of the word. Rather, these are vignettes that paint a larger picture of the displaced, or seemingly displaced, individual considering and dealing with the issues of race, addiction, lost and mental illness. As such, it is very much a novel of our time. Yazi's prose in Transcendent Kingdom is elegantly simple and direct, often decked hidden metaphors. In other words, you love reading her words. Anthony Fridgen. 
Fill us in on the independent newspaper saga, so well told by authors Alid Dazenois and Chris Whitfield in Paper Tiger. Paper Tiger, co-authored by Alida Dazenois and Chris Whitfield. Both were deeply involved in the events described in this most interesting and revealing book, as editors of the Cape Times during tumultuous times for the print media, especially the independent group. The beginning of the decline of once-respected newspapers in circulation and content began in 1993 when Irish investors, Independent Newspapers PLC, bought the Argus Group in South Africa. Newspapers are like slot machines. Get all the bits in the right place, pull the handle, and the money comes pouring out. Chris Tipler, consultant to INM. With their European and other businesses facing decline, they needed to repatriate all the money they could. South Africa became their cash pot, with no regard to future investments, innovation, or growth. Cost cutting became the aim. Senior staff, journalists, sub-editors, the people who make up the very soul of a good newspaper were lost. By 2009, it was obvious that INM were in serious financial difficulty, and three years later, were up against a mountain of debt, and a buyer was urgently needed. Here we meet Dr. Iqbal Survey, CEO of Sekunjala Investments Holdings. Doc, as he liked to be called, was a highly successful businessman. In June 2013, he headed the consortium that became the new owners. Survey had promised to rebuild the company. Other promises were made. Were they all kept? Decide for yourself when you read the book. By October 2013, a leader des Noirs wrote to Doctor Survey. It's too long to quote the letter she wrote. It goes from page 71 to 76 in the book. It makes disheartening reading. On the 5th of December at 11:45 p.m., the nation learned that Madiba Nelson Mandela had died. Newsrooms were not caught unprepared. Special front pages had been prepared. The Cape Times was close to deadline, and the editor decided to print a special four-page wraparound. The first edition had a 9 p.m. deadline and was already being sent all over the outlying areas of the Western Cape. On the front page was a report about the findings of the public protector Tuli Madonsela on a contract awarded to Sekunjalo Marine Services Consortium. Smith Amandla. One of the bidders launched a court challenge to set the award aside, alleging irregularities in the process and possible collusion by the four Sekunjalo-linked bidders. Sekunjalo decided not to fight Smith and Mandla in court, and would withdraw from the tender, which was then cancelled by the Department of Fisheries. The survey accused Alida Lasnois of dereliction of duty and/or gross lack of judgment. By failing to lead editorially with the death of Mandela, and publishing the fisheries story to quote, was most probably influenced by personal feelings against Survey. As an interesting point, 
Time magazine selected the Cape Times wraparound as one of the best Mandela front pages in the world. On the 6th of December 2018, the Cape Times marked the fifth anniversary of the death of Nelson Mandela with a wraparound. Independent have withdrawn from the Press Council and the Audit Bureau circulation. Ego, narcissism, bullying, dishonesty, threats. After reading this excellent book, you decide. This is not a dry, boring read. And you don't have to be an accountant to understand all the business wheeling and dealing that went on. Very clear, concise writing. To quote Professor Anton Harbour, this is a must-read for those who value quality, independent journalism. I fully agree. Paper Tiger is published by NB and came out in October 2019. And that's it from us for this month. Thanks to Mzukizi Maketa for putting this program together and to Rick Everett for his selection of music. If you missed any of the reviews, our Book Choice podcast will be up on the FMR website shortly, so please do check in the coming days. And we're playing out with a classic version of Summertime by Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. Have a great day and keep on listening to us, Fine Music Radio, 101.3 FM. 